Uh, okay, everybody, I think we, uh, we will begin. Uh, welcome to this, the fourth uh, Philippe Roman uh, lecture in this series, uh, to be given this evening yet again uh, by Matt Connolly. My name is Professor Mick Cox. I'm the director of LSE Ideas, and uh, I will be chairing this session this evening. It's, again, uh, wonderful to introduce uh, Matt Connolly, who has been here for the year, uh, the eighth of our, of our Roman professors, the first being Paul Kennedy, the second Chen Jian, the third Gilles Capel, the fourth Neil Ferguson, the fifth Ramachandra Guha, whose biography of uh, Gandhi has now been represented in Parliament Square by, by actually the statue of Gandhi. I was there on, on Saturday. And Applebaum, who's here this evening. Welcome, Anne. Nice to have you back. And Tim Snyder. Uh, Matt has done four lectures so far. The first lecture on US government commitment to transparency before the 20th century. The second on how US governments approached state secrecy, how it was affected by two world wars. Uh, the third lecture, which I chaired the other week, on how official secrecy altered the culture of government during the Cold War, and tonight on crowdsourcing, surveillance, and the era of the synopticon. And no doubt you've been reaching for your thesaurus <laughs> to try and work out what you think synopticon is. I got it confused with Bentham, by the way, uh, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Anyway, Matt, it's wonderful to have you here again this evening. I won't go through your long and distinguished CV, only to notice that you've written two great books, which I talked about before. If we could welcome Matt for the fourth of the final lectures, thank you very much indeed. Matt Connell. Thank you, Mick. Um, and, uh, and thank all of you for, for coming. I want to especially thank uh, Manny Rahman for making all this possible. Uh, this has been a true pleasure um, being here this year and giving these lectures. Um, and I've learned a few things along the way. Uh, one thing is I should always put Cold War in the title yeah. of any lecture. This could have been Cold War II, you know, in which case I would have had an arsenal-sized crowd perhaps in front of me. Um, last time I called it, uh, well, there was something about the Cold War in it. There'll be a bit of Cold War tonight, so don't worry. Um, it's going to be okay. Um, so, so let me get started. Um, I want to start by just... To begin with, anyway, going back. On récupère mieux sauter. So we're going to go back a little bit and see um, where we began. Because when I began these lectures, I, um, I told all of you, you know, that I was uh, thankful to all of you because all of you were going to help me write this book. And this book is going to be about the rise and fall of official secrecy. And I knew it was going to be difficult because just to begin with, normally when I tell people about how I'm going to write a book about the rise and fall of official secrecy. I am greeted with incredulity. You know, how is it you could say that secrecy has declined, much less fallen, you know, in the United States? Um, let's go back. Let's uh, go back again. I mean, after all, don't we all feel that we live in a kind of panopticon, um, a panopticon that's largely the creation of the United States, or there are other eyes out there, as we know now, after Edward Snowden, the five eyes. Um, don't all of us feel that um, all of us, you know, the many, are surveilled by the few, by the NSA especially? Um, now, how is it then, you know, you could say that 
in some sense anyway, that there has been a decline, even a fall in official secrecy. Well, let's think a little bit about this idea of the panopticon. You know, Bentham's whole point, Jeremy Bentham's point in coming up with this ideal prison, the model prison, was to promote transparency. Even now, he's really known for mainly for two things, the idea of the panopticon, but also as being one of the, the foremost proponents of transparency. And in fact, these two go together. You can't have surveillance without transparency. You can't have transparency without surveillance. And for Bentham, transparency was a good in and of itself, so it justified this kind of surveillance. And the Panopticon you know, wasn't just for prisoners or potential prisoners or terrorists or would-be terrorists. It was for everyone. He wanted to have Panopticons in schools. He wanted them in hospitals. He wanted them in factories. But still, even if many of us, shocking numbers of us, you know, seem all too willing to be surveilled, you know, if not by the government, then by private corporations, to willingly give up our, our data for the sake of convenience. So many of us would still say that these two ought to go together. And in fact, it ought to be reciprocal in the sense that someone ought to be watching the watchers. That it has to go both ways. That if we're going to live in this kind of panopticon, then we ought to know something about what they're doing with all this data, to say nothing of all the other things they're doing behind the shield of official secrecy. So the first challenge I faced, you know, was just to show that it wasn't always this way, and it didn't have to be this way, which is why I began at the beginning, the beginning of the American Republic, and I began with this argument that was a little bit easier to swallow, for most people anyway, which is the idea that the American Republic, at least by the standards of its day, was radically transparent. And this is something you can actually measure, and we're going to be doing a lot of measuring tonight. Um, and to begin with, you could just look at how often American diplomats encoded their communications, how often they decided to try to keep secret those things they were saying to one another and to Washington when reporting back from posts around the world. And in fact, you can find that there was a decline and a fall um, in the rate at which American diplomats were encoding their communications and trying to protect it from the watching eyes of other nations' secret services. <clears throat> and the argument, the larger argument I was trying to make was that in this early republic, there was not only an amazing, to our mind anyway, in our day and age, an amazing indifference you know, to protecting state secrets, what are normally the most closely guarded secrets there was also this sense that the people had to arm themselves, that it wasn't just about the secrets the state would keep. It was about the power the people would have to pry those secrets from government. And James Madison was one of the most famous proponents of this view. And this is what he said. He said that a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance. And a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives. And to an amazing extent, that's what happened. The American government itself, to a great extent, was responsible for policies that did empower the people to arm themselves against overweening state power. So, for instance, there are, um, in the United States, there are very high rates of literacy compared to anywhere else in the world, in part because of free and open public schools. Um, there was also uh, a... Uh, highly subsidized postage system 
that was treasured by Americans, um, even if they didn't care very much about the protection, the security of diplomatic communications. They were quite jealous about protecting the privacy of their own communications. And the American government was weak because that's the way the American people wanted it to be. It wasn't just transparent, it was permeable because American citizens could buy public office, even offices such as the diplomat or the, the minister, the ambassador. And just one of these uh, uh, disappointed suitors for a diplomatic post ended up assassinating the president in 1881. So disappointed was he at not getting these spoils um, from the recent election. The American government was weak and the people were relatively empowered because that's how Americans wanted it to be. But then things changed. And so I argued in the second lecture that it was the phenomenon of total war that really transformed um, the American state. And you can see this change in the thinking of some of America's leaders uh, in this era. Above all, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Here's what Wilson would say um, in 1913 before the United States entered the war. He said the government ought to be all outside and no inside. Everybody knows that corruption thrives in secret places and avoids public places. And we believe it a fair presumption that secrecy means impropriety. But in fact, for many Americans, that attitude came to be seen itself as a prologue to a farce and even a tragedy when the United States came to be the subject of systematic espionage and sabotage uh, in the years before it entered the war. Um, In this case, it seemed as if Uncle Sam was being made a fool and even a beast of burden, led around by the German ambassador. And so Wilson reacted in typical American fashion. He overreacted um, with the passage of the Espionage Act and a whole sweeping array of measures to crack down on dissent. And Wilson came to believe that knowledge, knowledge must be accumulated by a system which we have condemned because it is a spying system. But he said the more polite, call it a system of intelligence. You cannot watch other nations with your unassisted eye. You have to watch them with secret agencies planted everywhere. Now, this was the intent, and for a time, the United States really did build up an apparatus for gathering intelligence and keeping those secrets from all around the world. But it wasn't sustained. Because one of the main points I wanted to make in that second lecture was that it's not enough to gather information and try to keep it secret. You have to have the apparatus, the infrastructure, to store that information, to retrieve that information when you need it. Otherwise, the information is of no use to you. And in fact, the United States did not create such an apparatus. Um, This is just one image of many um, taken by the Works Projects Administration, a make-work program during the Great Depression. And one of the jobs they were given was to go around photographing American archives. These archives at the time were the responsibility of the State Department. And this is what happens when you put the State Department in charge of maintaining an archive for the entire American government. These were the War Department files. So seemingly these were valuable records, right? Intelligence that might have been useful in the war to come. And this is the way in which they were left. And it was only um, with the coming of the Second World War, um, which was preceded by the establishment of the National Archives, that American leaders came to believe that the archive itself was an instrument of national power. So the Office of Strategic Services, a precursor to the CIA, literally worked out of the premises of the National Archives and moved those files, and many more just like it, to the National Archives for safekeeping. And not just safekeeping, but storage, organization, um, and um, 
and organizations such that they could be readily retrieved and used. Now, in the Cold War period, it was no longer possible um, to enlist every citizen, right, and have them collectively responsible for guarding state secrets. It became necessary to use other means, right? You could no longer insist that every citizen keep quiet about the information they knew, seemingly innocuous information. You couldn't get everyone to agree that loose lips sink ships. Instead, you had to, or at least this seemed the case, you had to protect secrecy at the source. You had to create a culture of secrecy within government. Uh, And the model for this was the Manhattan Project. It was Leslie Groves who popularized within the government the concept of compartmentalization, the idea that everyone uh, had to be vetted, right? And everyone also should only know what they had to know. Even Santa Claus had to be vetted. Even Santa Claus had to be searched. And Santa Claus would only be allowed to know what he had to know, right, when entering uh, premises of the Manhattan Project. Now, this idea of compartmentalization spread across the government. And in the ensuing years, um, that secrecy increasingly became a currency of power, where any government official with access to secret information could use it to trade for other information. And even though over the years there are a whole series of efforts to try to control the production of new secrets, to try to protect the value of that currency, there was unrelenting inflationary pressure coming from below. Now, no president was willing um, to turn to Congress or the courts to try to get enforceable laws um, to actually make it harder for people to leak secrets, because that would have meant allowing Congress and the courts to have some say in what actually constituted an official secret, the leaking of which would be a punishable, even criminal, criminal offense. And this is something you can see back in 1971, uh, when there was a commission formed under the later um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, uh, that was meant to reform this whole system of official secrecy. And they did their work at the same time um, that the Nixon administration was fighting to prevent the release of the Pentagon Papers, fighting in the Supreme Court on the day day before, rather, this uh, particular memo was written. This is June of 1971. And here, the members of this commission agreed that insofar as the currency of classification is debased by overprotection of information, sanctions for unauthorized disclosure become more difficult to apply and enforce. If judicial enforcement efforts are increased in such a situation, it is very likely that there will be a substantial increase as well in the extent to which the merits of classification in each case, in each case will be subjected to judicial review. There's the rub, right? If you want an official secrets act, and if you want to start prosecuting people like Ellsberg and many more like him, then you have to begin to depend on the courts. You need the Congress to rewrite your laws. And neither Nixon nor any other president in the Cold War period was willing to, to share that kind of power. So what do we get instead? <clears throat> they say that this was even you know, before um, the Nixon administration lost that case before the Supreme Court. They came to this conclusion. And so what they argue instead is what every other commission that studied official secrets uh, in this period concluded. Um, That is, that it was necessary to reduce the amount of top secret information that was produced, to reduce the number of people who had the power to create secrets, 
right? They had to also set up some kind of automatic system for declassifying old secrets, the secrets of previous administrations that were no longer valuable to the administration in power, right? But in all these ways, these reforms, seemingly liberal, right? They sound liberal, don't they? Really, the effect of them, if they had succeeded, would have been to reduce the ability, to control the ability to create secrets uh, concentrated within the White House, within the current occupants of the White House. And time and again, these reform efforts fail, right? And they continue to fail because the same recipe of reforms is much the same as the current American administration, the Obama administration, has also tried to implement. Now, the one you know, lasting legacy of this particular Nixonian effort um, to reform official secrecy um, was the effort to introduce new technology to try to track classified information. So it was in the late 1960s um, that within the State Department, they began to experiment with electronics record keeping. They began to realize that the metadata, the data about data in these documents, could be tracked and compiled and analyzed. You could begin to keep track of who it was who had access to that information. Who it was, in other words, might have had access to the information that leaked. So they began to conduct experiments uh, to see whether all incoming and outgoing aerograms, telegrams, documents, and diplomatic pouches could be tracked and compiled and stored so that they could be retrieved and analyzed in order to identify the people who were leaking these secrets. Now, this was very much ahead of its time. Uh, but in 1973, they began to implement this system across the State Department. And it's for this reason that we now have these electronic records, literally millions of them, uh, which I want to talk about in a moment, which, in fact, have an increasingly important role to play in the future of official secrecy. But before I do that, let me just acknowledge, you know, that for most of you, I think, you know, this is a, a sad story. You know, and in fact, this may be the end of the story. I just compared Obama to Nixon, after all, right? Um, I mean, it was Obama, after all, who said that his would be the most transparent administration in history. And yet the number of prosecutions under the Official Secrets Act, there have been more of them in the Obama administration than in all other administrations combined. You know, he also said, um, and let me just show you this, this one um, first. He also said that um, uh, he would try to reduce the rate at which new secrets were created. In fact... In the four years uh, of his first administration, the rate of production of new secrets increased exponentially, right? Now, it's not just, you know, that there are more secrets all the time. Um, it's that there's more classified information, and there's less and less of it that's being declassified. Mm -hmm. So remember how I talked about those electronic records that began to be produced in the State Department in the 1970s? Well, as a result of that, we can now begin to track, you know, exactly how many cables they were, how many of them were classified and at what levels. And now we can also begin to get a sense of how many of them were not released, were not declassified. And in fact, what we find is that even though there are more and more cables year upon year, remember that the WikiLeaks cables, all of them came to about a quarter of a million, right? And they were supposed to cover most of a decade. In fact, even in the 1970s, even in 1974, there were almost 350,000 cables that were being produced. And yet, and still, fewer and fewer of these cables are being released to the public, even though most of them were never classified to begin with. So there's more bad news. Um, there's also the fact that 
We are living in um, the uh, period in which, um, even though there are more and more secrets produced all the time, proportionally less and less of them are ever releasing the public. And here again, the government actually keeps statistics for these things. So it was the, uh, it was the late 1990s. It was the golden age of declassification. After the end of the Cold War, we didn't know it at the time, but some 200 million pages were being declassified every year. And in the last, uh, and I haven't brought this up today, but if I did, you would see the same thing. The number of pages reviewed and released has been stagnant at about 30 million a year, even though the, the growth of official secrets has continued exponentially. Now, why is that? I mean, I, I've suggested there is a culture of secrecy that even presidents have been unable or unwilling to tame, um, but it's also a simple matter of resources. So the United States government, as you can see here, is spending, um, now it's over $12 billion, over $12 billion a year in trying to protect official secrets with lie detector tests and retinal scanners and vaults and safe rooms and all the rest of it. The United States government, on the other hand, uh, is spending less than $100 million a year, less than $100 million a year, less than one-tenth of one percent on declassifying those secrets. So in part, this is simply a matter of priorities. What's important to government and how they choose to spend the money? So at least partly, this is about priority. It was last, um, in the last couple of weeks uh, that I think many of us, many of us um, you know, first became aware you know, of uh, how far this has gone um, with the story about, about Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, and it was really the perfect storm, right? Because we had an official who decided that she would keep all of her emails um, as her own personal property, right? Um, and it was only until she had been asked, you know, to turn over at least some of them uh, that they began to turn over some um, to the State Department. Um, and we found out as well that almost half of these emails had been deleted. Uh, and we found out, too, that, in fact, if you look at all the emails produced by the State Department, um, it's estimated that the State Department produces, or sends, rather, if you just count numbers of emails sent, the State Department is, is sending about a billion emails a year. So in all of those billion emails, do you know how many are actually designated for archival preservation? It's about 60,000. 60,000 a year, right? So just do the math. You know, get a sense of you know, how little it is we're ever going to see, right, if this trend continues. Now, <clears throat> for many of you, I, I think this is probably the end of the story, right? I mean, isn't this where it ends? Isn't, isn't deletion the ultimate guarantor of secrecy? Isn't destruction of records the way in which governments, all governments, in the end, cover up their dirt? But I would argue that there is a difference there's a difference between secret information and lost information. Now, this was an insight that uh, a CIA analyst, um, he was actually the senior most CIA analyst. Uh, he was a Yale historian, Sherman Kent. It was an insight he had many, many decades ago. Um, when he, in heading up the um, intelligence community's board of national estimates, tried to make an argument about the kinds of things the intelligence community was able to uh, predict and the things that they weren't able to predict. And he made an argument that there is a difference between what is knowable but unknown and what is unknowable and unknown. It sounds a little Rumsfeld-esque, right? But if you think about it, it makes sense, right? I mean, there are some things, you know, that are unknowable. 
It's the difference between secrecy and mystery. Right? So there are certain things we will never know. You, you can't actually get into the heads of a foreign leader. Right? You can't ever really predict exactly what they're going to do because in many cases they don't know it themselves. These are mysteries. And I think if we're living in a digital dark age, you know, if it's the case you know, that uh, many of these records are not just secret but lost, destroyed, deleted, if we're living in a digital dark age, then we're living in the, the time of mysteries. Instead of a culture of secrecy, there is a cult of secrecy. Now, I don't think that has to be the end of the story. I hope it's not. I think there are things we can do now. And I want to spend the rest of my time telling you about some of the things that I've been trying to do with, um, with colleagues of mine. Um, and I'm going to make a few points to begin with about why this is possible. Some of the things I'll be talking about tonight. Now, first of all, I should just lower expectations, right? Mm. I'm going to talk about data mining declassified documents and the things that you can learn by doing so. But the first thing I want to do is just to say that we've only been doing this for about a year and a half now. Um, and we have found some things I think are interesting that I want to share with you. But all this work is, is very preliminary. It's not peer-reviewed, right? It needs work. There will be more work to be done. Um, but I want to begin just by making a point, some of the ironies that have come out of all this. Do you remember when I talked about those State Department electronic records? Beginning in the period 1973, that's when you first begin to get these born digital electronic records, right? This is eventually where WikiLeaks comes from. You know, the quarter of a million State Department cables come out of the same collection, the State Department's central foreign policy files. Um, and as you can see, you know, from the period, even though it really only covers a half year in 1973, it was over 150,000 records. And then you see the second line, there are also electronic withdrawal cards. Now that's the equivalent, if you've ever worked in an archive and you found a sheet of paper where the document's supposed to be, you know, that's where they try to explain what it is that they've removed. And so what you get, in the same way you do with a withdrawal sheet in a, a paper file in a, a regular archive, is you get metadata. You get the from and the to and the subject and the date. Right? And, in fact, you get a lot of these withdrawal cards. We now have hundreds of thousands of them. And we have millions of these State Department cables and other kinds of documents, these P-real documents, or documents that came by diplomatic pouch. So we have a tremendous amount of data. It's very rich with metadata. Each one of those cables that were released has 68 different fields of metadata. Even the history of how these documents were reviewed for declassification is recorded in that metadata. And it's all machine-readable. That is, you don't have to worry about optical character recognition uh, or blurry text, right? Instead, you have machine-readable data. So we have a lot of data. And the second thing we have is we've had a development in the field of computer science, the discipline of computer science, in what's called natural language processing, which essentially means turning words into data, right, and doing data analysis, trying to train algorithms to discover things about this um, this, these data about the language. And this is a little bit hokey. It's just a word cloud of some of the, the kinds of terms that people use in NLP. Um, but word clouds are appropriate when we're talking about language, right? Which is what NLP is all about. Now, the last thing I'd point out is, again, something that many people already know, is that there has been also exponential growth in the capacity of computers for storage uh, and processing. And so I'm going to be talking about some things tonight that are hard to do um, if you don't have the help of computer scientists and you don't have um, a lot of processing power. 
But I want to begin by talking about some of the things that almost anybody can do, right? That you could do with your laptop, uh, with data that's readily available. Um, after learning um, for a summer how to code, um, and I'm speaking from personal experience here because this is more or less where I began um, when I got interested in this kind of work. So. One of the things I realize, um, and many people have realized this, this is a document that's been put online about how it is on the left-hand side you have a document about Kissinger's conversations with his Chinese counterparts like Chairman Mao. On the right-hand side you have the same page from the same document where all of that text has been redacted. So what many people have long realized is that the whole you know, um, system for official secrecy is in some cases irrational, mm. which already, you know, means that you need to be a little bit humble about what it is we can discover in the way of patterns in official secrecy. Because it may be that it is unpredictable, right? And there's only so much that we're going to learn about it. But what I came to realize is that the very irrationality of official secrecy itself generates a lot of data, and potentially useful data. And so you get, in fact, different versions of the same document, where you have redacted and then unredacted text. And you can begin to analyze that text to see what you can discover about the kinds of secrets that the government insists on keeping. So what I started to do instead, to begin with, because it was easier, because I had to only do easy things, I was more or less on my own, um, was to take a collection. It's considered one of the most important collections in the history of American foreign relations. In fact, it's called the Foreign Relations of the United States. It is the official record produced by State Department historians. It is a document collection. Uh, it now amounts to some 450 volumes. Just from the period of 1945, uh, we have more than 80,000 documents. Right? So it's a relatively sizable collection. Um, and so what I did was I started by looking at um, those volumes um, that are now available in machine-readable format. So the State Department's signature um, transparency project is to release these foreign relations United States volumes in machine-readable format or XML format. And then I got some more volumes, right? And I started um, analyzing that redacted text. <clears throat> and what I found was that if you look at the words that surround redacted text and you look at the words that are capitalized, which is an easy way of finding proper nouns, um, you find that the name Henry Kissinger appears more often uh, than any other name in the whole history of the Cold War. And in some ways, you might say, well, we already knew that, right? But now we have data, you know, to begin to look at that and to see how and, uh, that's true and, and how others compare. Um, and you can begin to infer reasons for why that may be. Um, now, you know, so far, anyway, we're just talking about kind of words that are not redacted. So these are not, you know, these are things that typically were secret at one point but have since been declassified. Uh, but we're not talking about unredacted text, at least, at least not yet. Um, and one of the limitations with this relatively simple, you know, experiment is it involved looking at about 30,000 documents and finding about 6,000 redactions and then just finding what are the most common names that you find surrounding those redactions. One of the problems is that, you know, of course, you know, there's a lot of Henry Kissinger in the foreign relations United States. So these are the most common you know, words that you find, not just proper <laughs> nouns, but, but all um, of the nouns. And, and what you find is you know, Kissinger is way up there. You know, there's, uh, he's in the middle, of course, but you know, still, it's, uh, it's 40,000, right? Um, so yes, he's the most commonly redacted, or not redacted, rather, he's the most common name you find in the context of redacted text. 
Um, but he's also the most common name you find in the whole you know, series of the foreign relations in the United States. So what you really want to know is who is disproportionately likely to appear in redacted text. And so what you do instead now of just adding up lots of mentions of Kissinger and other people is you begin to do division, right? And again, you know, I'm a history major, which is why my math is very simple. Um, and so what you find, in fact, is that, you know, Kissinger is not at the top. He's a little bit further down the list. Um, and if you look at who is disproportionately likely, you know, to appear in the context of redacted text, you find other things, things that you wouldn't even recognize, at least not immediately. You find, you know, these are all words that appear more than 100 times. So I've eliminated all the kind of one-offs, you know, or even the 50-offs. So these are the ones that appear more than 100 times in the Foreign Relations series. So does anybody know who Caligaris is? I didn't either. Right? I had to, had to look him up. Um, that was Castillo Armas. That was the CIA code name for, for the man, the military officer they decided to install when the CIA overthrew Ar, um, Acabo Arbenz in Guatemala. Um, O-D-Y-O-K-E. That is a, a CIA cryptonym for the United States. If you, if you were paying attention where we were talking about the history of cryptography, you know why it is you don't use common names in enciphered communications. You need to use cryptonyms, and they do it with the United States and lots of other things too. Colby was a director of the Central Intelligence Agency, so he's often disproportionately likely to show up in redacted documents. So, so what? Okay, in this case, I used a bit more data. This was about 80,000 documents. It was about 15,000 redactions. And we started to get a little bit closer to this issue of, like, who's in the room? You know, who's handling these, these matters, right? When 30, 40 years later, State Department officials and CIA officials decide that the American people and no one else should know what it is exactly they were doing. So we're beginning to get a little bit closer to that, that question, right? But we still have a long ways to go. Um, now, this is just kind of the same thing, but um, looking at all words rather than just uh, the names. You know, and it's in some ways not surprising. You have operations. You have secret, of course. You have other figures like Bush and Scowcroft that are more familiar for many of you. Um, but still, can we get at the text that was actually redacted? Can we begin to get at the things that for even longer than 30 or 40 years, uh, the government tried to keep secret. Well, here again, I mentioned before how it is, you know, when you have thousands of examples of documents like this, <clears throat> you have many, many thousands of examples in which the government, you know, has released different versions of the same document, different parts of the government treating secrecy differently. You have a lot of data. It's called supervised data. It's the kind of data that, in this case, if you're not a history major, if instead you have a PhD in computer science or, or mathematics, you can use this data to create um, classifiers. <clears throat> um, you can begin to make predictions you know, about what it is you might see in that redacted text. Um, and the redacted text is important. Even historians, even history majors know, you know we're missing something, and it would be good to have a lot of examples to try to know more about what it is that we're not seeing. I mean, if you go all the way back to Thucydides, this is what made historians historians. We were critical of our sources, and we tried to understand what it was we weren't seeing. How can you do your job as an historian if you don't try to at least make some inferences about what it is the government is not telling us? How it is official secrecy creates a bias, you know, an intrinsic bias in the official record that we should try to correct for. So I wasn't the first one who had this particular idea. It was Mark Trachtenberg many years ago. 
um, who began to gather up examples of redacted and unredacted text to begin to see what it is you could find out about the kinds of things that are typically redacted. And so this is one of the great examples that Trachtenberg gave. Um, it was an example of a meeting between a famous meeting. Somebody asked me to talk about Kennedy tonight, so I'll give you the Kennedy example. It's not the assassination, alas, but it is a dramatic meeting in, in Vienna um, when he confronted his communist counterpart, Nikita Khrushchev. Um, and if you read this text, you find him talking in ways that sound you know, like he's the Kennedy we know and love, you know, a liberal, talking about democracy, right, the importance of American relations. But in that redacted text, <clears throat> he talks about, in this case, you know, why it is he can't accept the Soviet position on Berlin. He can't accept it because he says, if we accepted such a proposition, we would lose our ties in West Europe and would lose all our friends there. We do not wish to act in a way that would deprive the Soviet Union of its ties in Eastern Europe. And he goes on to make an explicit comparison between Cuba and Poland. So what he's basically saying is that, you know, no more would the United States accept the Soviet Union interfering in Cuba than the Soviet Union would accept the United States interfering in Poland. So this is the language of power politics, and it's often the kind of language you see redacted uh, and taken out of these documents. Now, for Trachtenberg, this means you have to begin to make, not assumptions, but you have to at least begin to make some inferences you know, about the other things you not, might not be seeing in redacted text. But in all the many years that Trachtenberg was doing this, and Trachtenberg is the ultimate archive rat, and I say that with great esteem, because you can have no more... Um, uh, you know, greater honorific as an historian to be called an archive rat. But in all those years and all his thousands of documents, he only came across about 64 of these paired documents with and without redactions. Now, I was fortunate that I had a very good computer scientist. He was a PhD student at the time and he's now a professor at Harvard, a guy named Sasha Rush, who developed both visual and textual analysis to take a collection of 117,000 documents to find redacted and unredacted versions of the same document. And what Sasha was able to do was to identify more than 5,000 of these redaction pairs. Um, and it was actually quite difficult, you know, because the pages, as you've seen, are very blurry. You know, oftentimes they're, um, you know, the, the words are not correctly transcribed. There might be hand uh, inscriptions in the margins and so on. The, there might be different drafts of the same document. So in this first pass, we thought we had a nice proof of concept when you had Mohammed Mossadegh jumping out at you. Mm. Mossadegh was disproportionately likely you know, to show up in redacted text. So it's not just the absolute number. It's relatively frequently uh, in all these redactions. Why? Because Mossadegh, after all, was a man the United States government um, overthrew. You know, he's the prime minister of Iran until the U.S. removed him right, to restore the Shah's control of Iran. But there are also all these other people that you may not have heard of. And there's a reason for that. It's because many of them are kind of mid-level you know, NSC officials. In some cases, the kind of people who were processing and drafting the documents. And what we began to realize is that we had errors, right? And you always will with this kind of work in dealing with 117,000 documents. In some cases, these were just new versions of the same document where somebody didn't redact the text. Instead, they were adding a paragraph, right, which seemed like unredacted text. So we had to improve our methods, right? And, um, and once we had done that, we got a better list. We began to compile a list of what I call America's most redacted. <laughs> so we didn't eliminate errors, but at least we got the numbers down. Um, and we found, you know, for instance, um, a man who had been the prime minister of Turkey, 
you know, who in these documents was not playing fair with the United States and was now at risk of a military coup, at risk of being lynched. Um, we found, too, Azam Pasha, who was the Secretary General of the Arab League, somebody who once threatened Israel with a war of extermination. The American officials in these redacted documents thought he wasn't intrinsically evil, but neither did they feel they could trust him with carrying messages. Um, there's the mayor, Willy Brandt, Berlin. He was sometimes called the bastard of Berlin. Um, but in these same American documents, it was sensitive about the way in which he seemed wobbly, actually, about how far he was willing to go in facing up to Soviet threats. Uh, there was also Louis Jacques, um, who was a senior official in French Algeria, later on became uh, the Secretary General at the Quai d'Orsay, the French Foreign Ministry, um, who was willing to admit in these same redacted documents that his political superiors were stoking anti-Americanism for political reasons. Um, the kind of thing that American officials, even years later, would try to um, protect. And then finally, there's our old friend Mohammed Mossadegh. It's a very blurry image, but I, I, um, this particular one, I think, in many ways kind of shows you know, what happens, um, in some cases anyway, to America's most redacted. You get arrested, put on trial, and executed. All right, so these are some of the things that you can learn um, when you look at the people disproportionately likely to be redacted. How about the special relationship? Mm. I know you've all been waiting for this. So how special was that special relationship? Well, you know, who's to say, right? Um, I want to give you an example of how it is you can come to opposite conclusions with data analysis and why that's a good thing, why I think we should be having these kinds of arguments, but now using new kinds of data and new kinds of methods. Now, in this case, what we have is um, we have the number of mentions of the United Kingdom or Britain or the English or London so we use different ways of referring to the UK um, compared to references to other countries like China or the Chai Coms, the Chinese Communists, or Beijing or Peking. So you have to come up with the different ways in which these countries would be mentioned. In this case, this is from the Foreign Relations United States series, um, and it's from uh, the period 1952 to 1968 when we have relatively complete coverage. And what you find is a long, slow decline in the number of mentions of the UK um, this is relatively speaking compared to all mentions. Um, and you see other countries beginning to figure large you know, in the concerns of American diplomats, at least as measured by the official record of American diplomacy. Um, but let me give you a different way of measuring these things. These are the people who, during the Johnson administration, were particularly likely um, to appear in redacted text. <laughs> and what you find is that many of them are either Americans who are posted to London, or they're British uh, ministers, or they're Britons um, who are posted to the United States. Why? Because another reason why you might be redacted in the official record of American foreign relations is because of the things that you say, right? And the sometimes kind of scandalous or, or even conspiracy-mongering things that people will sometimes say. And um, I was kind of surprised uh, looking at some unredacted text, finding Winston Churchill, you know, among those um, who is particularly, um, not particularly likely to be redacted, um, but who was uh, redacted when he started talking about Pearl Harbor. Now, he told this story about Pearl Harbor. Um, uh, this is back in 1954. He was talking to Henry Cabot Lodge, the American ambassador to the United Nations. And he said he was talking about something that had happened you know, many years before uh, when he was uh, entertaining the American diplomats, Avril Harriman and John Winnan. John Winnan was the American ambassador to London at the time. Um, he replaced uh, Kennedy, or Kennedy Sr. Um, and 
Churchill, you know, when he had to break the news about how Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor had been bombed, <clears throat> expected that these Americans would be shocked and worried. But they weren't. Instead, Churchill said, and I'm quoting, the most extraordinary thing happened. Winnett and Harriman got up and embraced each other and danced around the room with delight. Now, in this same conversation, this is back in in 1954, but still, you know, good, you know, what, 13 years after Pearl Harbor, he went on. You know, he talked about how um, it was uh, the same uh, document, top secret and redacted, you know, when when Churchill got to talking about Pearl Harbor. According to Churchill, Army Chief of Staff George Marshall had, quote, taken a much longer horseback ride on that day than had usually been the case. And that the general secretary, Bedell Smith, who was actually in the room, 1954, he was a CIA director at the time, had failed to give him an intercepted Japanese declaration of war. And Lodge told about how Churchill summoned Bedell Smith over. Talk about it. And Bedell Smith refused to answer when Churchill asked him, tell us about that telegram that you didn't deliver on Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> so we would never know any of this, you know, if... Um, someone at some point at the Eisenhower Library, looking at a copy of this, of this top secret document, decided that what had been redacted would be unredacted. Maybe they didn't even know it had been redacted. But these are the kinds of things that you begin to find when you start looking at unredacted text. All right, I'll talk about another technique. Um, this is more advanced. Um, there's some very complex math involved in topic modeling. But the idea behind topic modeling is that if you look at um, all the words in a large corpus. I've been talking about foreign relations in the United States, about 80,000 documents. The declassified documents reference system, it's about 117,000 documents. In a moment, I'll be talking about collections that are more than a million documents. But even you know, with 117,000 documents, you could take all of them, all of their words, and you could treat them like the little pieces in a Scrabble game. Treat them one at a time. And begin to see what words tend to co-occur in the same passages. Right? Because it's a way, you know, and it works remarkably well. It's a way of beginning to see what sorts of topics do you find. Because if you start to list those words in the rank-ordered frequency with which they appear, you begin to see the kinds of topics that are represented in historical document collections. And there's a computer scientist named Hannah Wallach, um, who's now, you know, joined us on this uh, project at Columbia, um, but who, who's um, all at Microsoft Research, um, who did an experiment in which she wanted to see how long would it take for documents representing different topics um, to be declassified by the U.S. government. And I just gave you a little bit of conspiracy theorizing, um, but now I'm going to perhaps disappoint some of you if you're interested in UFOs, um, to convey her research and her findings, which is that, in fact, documents related to nuclear weapons take much longer to get declassified, on average, than documents related to UFOs. It's about 14 years for unidentified flying objects. Uh, It's more than 50 years uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons. Now, some of you may be surprised about that. Um, You know, but if you think about it, I don't think it's that surprising. I, I, you know, remember, you know, talking with somebody about this once. Um, You know, don't you think if the Air Force had proof that there were extraterrestrials that were invading Earth's atmosphere, that they would seize on it as a fantastic reason to increase defense appropriations, right? Wouldn't they have done that a long time ago? <laughs> so, in fact, you can, you know, find experiments with UFOs in the Air Force. Um, this is one. This is a declassified document, actually. 
took more than 50 years for this to be declassified. It's an exception that proves the rule. Why? Because this was a uh, Pentagon uh, research project for a new weapon system, what might have been a very expensive weapon system. This was supposed to go at 80,000 feet, Mach 3. This is going to be the Air Force's newest interceptor. Um, but if you look online, now that it's been declassified, there's some truly hilarious videos showing what happened when the Air Force experimented <laughs> with UFOs, which is usually that they went flying out of, out of control. But still, I have to ask myself, isn't it possible that some of those people looking up at the night sky when they thought they saw something <laughs> might have seen something like this? <laughs> Did we have to wait 55 years to find out? Uh-huh. I don't think so. So... Um, I'll just give you one or two more examples. So you can also look at topics, you know, in terms of the most heavily redacted topics. And the most heavily redacted topic in the Eisenhower years uh, is one where the words are oil, company, construction, barrels, right? And it's interesting. When you begin to look at these documents, some of them are about Guatemala, but the ones about Guatemala are about oil companies, in this case, this is a document about how it is the CIA was working with U.S. oil companies to sabotage Guatemala's oil reserves, right? And it worked. <laughs> it worked. It was part of the overall plan to overthrow the Arbenz government. Um, all right, so I'll give you one last example. This is um, what, what you can do uh, when you have, you know, in this case, more than a million State Department cables and you have a quarter of a million cables where you only have the metadata because they've still been withheld. They're still secret. Um, and what you could do is you could look at what words in the metadata are predictive of a cable being withheld from the public, not being released. And the most um, important word of all is boulder. <laughs> the word boulder appears in a State Department cable. In the metadata, that is, it's 139 times more likely that that cable is going to be withheld and not released. Um, the word Boulder refers to Operation Boulder. Now, I didn't know that at first. You know, at first we were just kind of looking at, well, where were these cables going and coming from and so on. This is a little hard to make out, but um, what it shows is that a lot of those cables were going to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and a lot of them were coming from places like, like Amman and Cairo. Why? Because Boulder was a, a, an operation which anybody um, who had an Arabic-sounding last name and wanted to apply for a visa to come to the United States, was going to get investigated by the FBI. This was an operation that was launched uh, just after the Munich Olympics, um, after the attack on Israeli athletes. And even if we can't read most of these cables, the vast majority of them, at least we could see you know, where it began, you know, where it peaked, you know, how it declined. Yeah. And th- precisely because officials decided that uh, they were going to withhold the vast majority of cables related to Boulder. And this decision, by the way, was made shortly after September 11th, precisely when the United States was you know, adding to no-fly lists right, and, and drastically ramping up surveillance of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. Um, precisely because they decided this was a highly sensitive subject, it left a statistically conspicuous gap in the public record. Um, so this is the kind of thing you, you wouldn't know, you know if you didn't have some means you know, of, of looking you know, somehow, you know, I had more than a million documents. So there were people at the time who had some inkling of what what was going on. They asked, you know, is the Nixon administration playing politics with civil liberties? Absolutely, right? But now we can demonstrate these things with data. Um, Okay. We can do traffic analysis. It's hard. We haven't found a lot yet. 
um, we've developed a kind of Kissinger detector. Because <laughs> we thought, you know, in the same way the NSA uses um, our communications to do traffic analysis, to find chatter that might be associated with certain kinds of events, we could also use it to try to discover undiscovered events. But unfortunately, if you just look at all cables or even just all of the ones that are coded as secret, I mean, it does in some ways help you learn things about the Vietnam, you know, the denouement of the Vietnam War. You know, it began earlier than most people who write about this uh, suspected. Um, but still, you know, it's not enough even just to look at secret cables, right? Um, so we're using new methods, you know, to try to uh, learn more uh, by looking at something the State Department itself developed, which is called Traffic Analysis by Geography and Subject. The State Department itself was trying to do traffic analysis on its own diplomatic cables. So we're now trying to leverage that to, to actually achieve that goal of finding undiscovered events. But we haven't done it yet. Okay. Now, when I first started working with colleagues in computer science and mathematics, um, one of the first things that we got excited about was this idea that if you had enough examples of redacted and unredacted text, could you actually predict the stuff that's still redacted, right? Like Hillary Clinton's one email that's been released so far is about WikiLeaks, of all things. Hmm. The first line says, it's on December 24, 2010. Madam Secretary, I hope you and your family are having a wonderful Christmas. And all the rest of it's redacted. <laughs> now, could we learn something about what's still in that, that redacted text, that redacted state? Um, the short answer is perhaps. Um, similarly, if you have enough examples, authenticated examples of someone's writing, a, a senior official perhaps, and you've had anonymous documents, would it be possible to do what they call stylometric analysis to identify the authors of those anonymous documents? And the short answer to that is maybe. Now, the reason I can't tell you much more than that is because it's really hard to do that kind of research. It makes a lot of people nervous and upset. Um, so, you know, when I started talking to people about doing this kind of research, uh, there were stories in the, in the media. Um, they, they covered it in The New Yorker and Wire and there's other things like NPR and so on. And one of the images that came out of it was, uh, was this idea that we had this machine, right? <laughs> And in fact, I'm guilty, because I even talked about how we could create a kind of declassification engine, right? And it, it created this idea that, you know, there's a machine somewhere, right? I wish I had this kind of budget, you know, to build something like that. But, um, you know, the, the fact is there are some things that are feasible, you know, with redacted text. You could, for instance, if you had enough of this kind of data, you couldn't reconstruct whole sentences. But you could, for instance, have probabilistic estimates of whether there is a name or a location in that text, which name, which location. Um, similarly with anonymous documents, um, the field of authorship attribution has been well established. It's been around for many decades now. And if you have enough data, you can do a lot. But should you? That's the question. And can you? Can you do that kind of research and get away with it? You know? um, and we face those kinds of questions. Um, now, what we've done so far you know, is we put up some tools, right? So we have... Um, you know, a redacted, an archive of redacted text where we allow people to, in effect, do their own research, look at redacted and unredacted versions of the same documents. Um, we put up another tool, um, modestly called the Sphere of Influence, um, which is um, uh, something that allows you to look at withheld um, cables. You can select for classified or unclassified. You can see which ones are still withheld. And even if you can't read the cables, you can at least see the patterns, you know, of communications in this period. Um, so these are some of the things we can, we can do. And we've also um, created a, a handy website. Um, 
that would allow you know, any of you to check out you know, some of the other things we've done. Um, we have, for instance, um, a page where you can begin to search through these documents and for the first time bring together all these different collections that until now have all been separated. You know, in some cases, more or less inaccessible at government websites with non-functioning search engines. Um, and you could filter them. We're not quite ready yet, but you can also generate graphs and heat maps. You can do that kind of burstiness analysis I talked about. You can do topic modeling. When we're done with it, um, all these things will be launched. Um, but there's still this larger question, you know, as to even if you could do this kind of research, should you do this kind of research? Now, I would argue that, yes, you should. And the main argument I would make is that I will be the first to admit this. I'd be happy to discuss it um, in the Q&A that there are certain risks with doing this kind of work. There are. Um, but there is a very great risk, a real risk. There is real damage being done right now you know, to the public record, to the whole cause of accountable government, you know, by the fact that public authorities have so completely neglected um, the, their, their basic duty to report on the things that they've done in our name. They have allowed official secrecy to go so completely out of control that I think that we actually have to begin exploring what we can do as citizens to hold government accountable. That data mining, instead of just being a tool for state surveillance, has to be a tool for citizens to empower themselves as James Madison would have wanted us to, to begin to hold government accountable for the secrets it still keeps. Now, of course, government has to keep secrets. You know, no one would deny. But the existing system is not even protecting these secrets that are really dangerous and that really can get people killed. And it's also breeding tremendous cynicism you know, to the point where I find you know, audiences strangely detached you know, when talking about these kinds of issues. So I want to leave you with those thoughts. I know I get a little excited you know, talking about these things. But I think that we all have to get a little bit excited, right? And maybe even a little bit angry. So, um, so let me open it up then and, and um, ask you if you have any questions. Thank you very much. Oh, and, uh, Great. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, the, the website is called uh, history-lab.org. Okay, Matt. I thought, I thought that was fantastic and innovative, interesting, and linked the question of history to the question of demo democratic citizenship. Uh, I suppose I'll start off with a kind of really dull question, if I could. Um, in all that you've been doing over the last, what, two years or, or so, you've taken us through the technical means which you've employed, which are fantastic, and I could never do it, and I'm sure most historians couldn't do it, by the way, so well done. Have you discovered anything really new? Have I know, you, I mean, have I know, you ever heard of Boulder? I'd never heard of Boulder. Okay. Okay. If, yeah. If no, I, no. If I, if I had a lot of the other stuff, I think I knew about what happened to Paul Mossadegh and all the other guys, you know, because I, well, I go back what, a long way. But you knew what Billy Brandt, I knew the hate. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm sure there's some very nasty stuff on, yeah. on the Indians as well in 1970. So, yeah. I mean, what has really jumped out of you? I mean, that's yeah. the only thing. I mean, at the end of the day, what an historian is trying to do is yeah. discover something new, right. say something new. Yeah. You kind of take us through all the technical means, which is right. great. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not denigrating it. Absolutely. So, what does it come out of the end? Really good. American embassies, would you say, um, were the ones that produced the most classified information, and why? <laughs> well, I'm sure. Do you know? Well, I'm sure. Should it's we know? I sh well, I don't know. You tell me. I'm asking well, you. Well, like if if we think that, um, and this is why I get excited because yeah. Yeah, I mean no, it's no. interesting. I mean no, it's, it's, it's yeah. and this is the right question.
question to ask. Like, what have we actually discovered? Yeah. You know, what do we know now that we didn't know before? Exactly. And what I'm, what I'm really struck by is how there are, yes, there are more questions than answers, but why is it we never asked these questions before? Sure, sure. Like, why is it that we just, well, you know, I don't know, this new stuff just got declassified. Maybe yeah. I should read it. Without thinking about, like, well, what wasn't declassified? You know, what is it that you're not seeing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've talked to historians who would say that, um, yeah, when I find stuff's classified, I just move on yeah. you know, to the next it's too thing. much work. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, so, so the question I would ask is that I think that, you know, and you've seen me give other presentations, yeah. you know, about, like, agenda setting, you know, for yeah. instance, like, how, what, you know, some of the more about um, kind of, well, you know, was it a special relationship? How do we measure what's special or not, right? <laughs> I mean, the extent to which American diplomats and other officials talk about Britain you would think is, in some ways anyway, a kind of measure about whether Britain mattered or not. So, like, shouldn't we begin, you know, to use whatever methods we can to begin to measure these kinds of, sure. of questions more precisely? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, for instance, um, well, I, I could give other instances. Yeah. But, you know, my, my main point here is that there are questions that we haven't asked before. Yeah. There are questions we've asked for a long time with ever be, without ever being able to resolve them, right? And, and the methods themselves, I, I would argue are not just like, wow, that's kind of like cool, but you know, what have you discovered? What, what I would ask you, um, Mick, is, is when, if and when, we get 30,000 Clinton emails, and when we get, let's just imagine, like the, state, the National Archives estimates that it, it pr- conserves about a 3% of the public record of the United States. In the UK, um, the people at the UK National Archives say they pre- preserve about 10% of what um, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office produces. Let, let's imagine that we got 10% of a billion State Department cables, or emails rather. Uh, if we got 10%, if we got 100 million State Department emails, mm. where, what would you read? Where would you begin? How, how would you know where to start? So, I mean, those are the questions I think we have to start asking ourselves as historians. Yeah. And th- this, for me, is the beginning of an answer. It's not the end of it you know it's just the beginning but your view is not one that big data solves it is it at all i mean because there's the whole question of interpretation causation is not about what you find in archives right. instinct you know wisdom yeah. historical knowledge all of that right. comes into it. so your argument is not one crudely about big data is it as i understand it because that argument is sometimes put and sometimes that kind of really Kind of is, is kind of naive empiricism yeah. of the first order, but you're, you're not a naive yeah. empiricist. But right. what's the difference between what you're saying and a kind of big data guys? Well, there, there is, is a kind of. I mean, I think or, there's the the, do you want to the economy, the, the economy, and you're not a historian, so I can tell you this. Well, I don't know. But, I, I'm called many things, and sometimes even an historian. But, but isn't but there you it, go. like I mean, I find it kind of amazing. Like when you think about standards of evidence um, in the historical profession, yeah. um, like, you want to talk about naive? I mean. Uh-huh. Aren't we a little naive as, as readers of history when we accept as evidence sure. you know, a few quotations that somebody has found after years of working with archives, looking at thousands of documents, Absolutely. right? We don't even know what they looked at. Sure. We could look at their you know, list of sources and so on. But they probably, if they did their job, you know, they probably looked at thousands, tens of thousands of documents. And they came up with a few quotations you know, to prove, in some cases, prove a very important point. The hinge of their argument. Aren't we a little naive not to ask for more than that? Mm. But how could we, right? I mean, in the past, how would you know? How do you know what archives they looked at? How do you know what documents they looked at? What I'm suggesting is that it's starting to become possible. Mm. Because sure. if, for instance, you have, 
You know, and the State Department is releasing these um, installments of the Center for Foreign Policy files every year. It's now up to 1978. It now totals more than 1.4 million cables. It's more than 400,000 withdrawal sheets. Everyone can get access to that. Any one of you can get access to it. And if you had the kind of tools um, that would allow you to explore that, right, you could begin to test those claims. Mm. And why wouldn't you? Right. So, so I think if we haven't done that before, it was just because it was too hard. Yeah. Yeah, it was too hard. But I think it's, you know, in some ways anyway, some of this is going to be hard, but it, it's going to make certain things easier. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Okay. okay. All right. Now, we've got time, obviously, for questions, and obviously uh, Matt will formulate a few answers. Uh, let's begin. Uh, the gentleman here, if you could just say who you are. Yeah. Uh, bring the mic over here. We've got two mics. And then there's a gentleman at the back. So there's a gentleman up there who's got your hand up. Yeah, if you could. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Nico Heller. Um, isn't there a sort, of, a sort of a Snowden effect as well? Because, of course, there's a reason for why things are classified. And if you are finding ways of kind of uh, deciphering them, then, of course, then maybe there'll be other kind of ways of, you know, kind of creating more smoke screens. And, and, and what, what is the kind of dynamic there? Uh, do, do, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think when I talked about how, you know, there are risks with doing research on, um, you know, trying to predict content of redacted text. One of the, I think, biggest risks is that we're going to see more redactions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, You know, but my feeling is that uh, it's not like we haven't seen redactions before. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we, we have been um, witnessing, you know, exponential growth in official secrecy. The CIA re- releases, of all the things that the CIA reviews for declassification, just to give you an example, um, the CIA only looks at um, materials from outside the clandestine branch, right? Mm. And so they're only looking at, in effect, like research analysis. They, they release mm. approximately 11% mm. of what they review. And that's just the documents. It's not telling you whether there's anything in there other than redactions. Mm. So, you know, if that's the case, you know, then we have been, you know, losing this battle for a long time without even fighting. You know, so, so my argument is that there are going to be certain risks if, if in effect, you know, we're trying to use um, data mining, declassified documents to begin to, you know, understand a bit better, you know, what it is we're not seeing. Mm. But I, I think that there are also real risks with, with not, you know, trying something new. It's going to be one of the inten- yeah. unintended effects of your work, Matt, and I'm sure your friends <laughs> in CIA or whatever know about it. And the unintended effect of Snowden is actually to make redaction even more likely, though. You mean more, words, you, more than you, it is now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it possible? Okay. Is it possible? You know, I mean, I know. they're responding. Could it be even worse? You may be a I threat. mean, at what point does this, you know, the U.S. government stop meeting its legal responsibilities to preserve sure. the historical record, right? You know, at, at what, you know, and actually, I think the, the Snowden example is a good one because, in fact, um, I used to quote this uh, Supreme Court decision where lawyers who were representing um, prisoners in Guantanamo were told by uh, Justice Alito that they had no standing you know, because they, they couldn't prove that they were actually subject to surveillance, right? So it was a kind of catch-22. The case was where they were trying to FOIA those documents, try to find out what was the scope and nature of official surveillance, and they were told they had no standing you know, to obtain those documents because they couldn't prove that they had been subject to surveillance. So that was the state of play you know, before Snowden. Now those lawyers actually have you know, some facts, right? To, to demonstrate that, um, yes, they do have standing. So, yes, there, there are risks. But let me make, you know, one thing I, I hope nobody goes home with um, sure. uh, is, is the idea that this is all just about kind of exposing every secret and, sure. you know, we're going to find out all, you know, the things crawling under the rocks and whatnot. 
This same research can and will be used for purposes of assisting and accelerating declassification. You can use the same methods that allow you to identify the kinds of things that are going to be redacted, the kinds of topics that tend to be highly classified, to help government reviewers do their job more efficiently. Because if you talk to my friends at the CIA, what they will say is that they have no way of coping you know, with a billion email, right? Or even you know, a, a million email. They, they simply do not have the staff or the budget to review corpora of that size. And in fact, what they'll say is they would prefer to have some automated means that would prioritize those records that require closer scrutiny, even if there is an error rate, right? Mm -hmm. Because they know that humans also make errors. So unfortunately, even though there have been a whole you know, series of government reports, like the, one of the best of them is the Public Interest Declassification Board, which is a bipartisan committee appointed by not just both parties, but by Congress and the, the White House. They've issued a series of reports saying that there has to be support for new technology to automate and accelerate declassification. Otherwise, the entire apparatus for reviewing and releasing documents will break down. This is not like me just being dramatic. This is like kind of senior public officials have come to this conclusion. And yet, does anybody know like how much funding has been appropriated for that purpose? Not much. Can anybody guess? Mm, not much. Zero. Zero, not much. Zero dollars. <laughs> so so that's just, you know, a point that I think is crucial is that there are different dimensions to this. You know, the, the dimension I've been talking about tonight is what we can do as citizens, you know, what need, we need to know as, as researchers um, but what I would also suggest, a different talk for a different audience, would have been about what the same technology can do for public officials to help them meet their, their responsibilities to mm. preserve and, and eventually release the public record. Mm. Mm. Great. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there's a gentleman at the back there and then a, a gentleman here. So if you could... Uh, is anybody upstairs? Uh, hand waving. Yep. I'll take one at a time, and then you'll go second. Yeah, please, if you could say. Um, Dr. Keith Postler, Staff, Department of Statistics, LSE. Um, you have the word um, crowdsourcing um, in your title. Yes. Um, how do you see or how do you employ crowdsourcing, or do you ha have any idea of crowdsourcing that is peculiar or particular to you in this research. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked because it was, it was already getting a bit long and <laughs> Nick always twitches when I get past you know, a certain point. Um, but the idea here about crowdsourcing is that um, I was just at the National Archives today as were some of you, you know, um, and there we were, right, with our cameras or our iPhones and we're taking thousands of images of documents, right? Doesn't it ever strike any of you how silly that is? Right? I mean, <laughs> because like some of those documents, anyway, they're like Paris Hilton. You know, they've had their pictures taken many times, right? <laughs> and it, isn't it like, I mean, I don't know about you, but my back is still bothering me, right, from being hunched over like that for hours, right? But that's what you do. That's what historians will do now, you know, to do basic research is you want to take those documents home with you. And now it's much easier to do that in, in digital format. Um, and some of us even go further. You know, they're, they're like open source. Not Yeah, some of them are open source. or tools, you know, that will automatically do OCR, optical character recognition. They'll even do a kind of, you know, uh, find similar documents feature. Um, but the crowdsourcing, where does that come in? Just imagine that we created a means by which um, anybody could upload, you know, the documents that they're collecting at the National Archives and begin to aggregate those personal collections to create a virtual archive of documents. Um, 
Now, why would people do that? People have tried this before. It never works. Um, the main reason is because everybody's busy. You know, your back already hurts, right? And you've got your work to do. Why would you like start uploading those thousands of documents, especially if you're just giving them away? Right? Because unlike in statistics, we historians, we work alone. Right? We're not going to share our data. Right? Even after the book's published, in many cases, people don't want to give up that hard work that they gave um, and, and share it with others. The reason why people might begin to do this is if you gave them incentives to do it, if you gave them tools that they could use to analyze those documents. And so what I see as the long-term future here, you know, and this is kind of blue sky vision, but imagine you could create a kind of declassification engine that would allow people to upload the documents they found in archives to find matching versions of those documents that might have the same text but now unredacted. Or if they don't know who wrote that document, there would be enough examples of authors writing that it would provide probabilistic estimates of who it is who might have written that document. If people had access to those kinds of tools, I think they would start to upload their, those documents. And we'd start to digitize you know, the archives of the world. I mean, every day at the National Archives in College Park, National Archives in, in Kew, you know, in Paris, the Cadre archives, you know, all over the world, there are people themselves digitizing archives. So if we, if we only provided a means and an incentive for them to begin to aggregate those collections, we could, yes, build a kind of declassification engine, and you would feed it with data. And the more data you fed into it, the more powerful those predictions would become. Yeah. So that's the idea, anyway, of how you could begin right. to crowdsource this problem. Yeah. Sure. Thanks for asking the question. There's a, a lady up there. Yeah, please. Thanks. Um, hi. My name's Nastran. I'm a journalist. Um, I was thinking through your talk about if there is any scope to use gamification or if anyone has... Scope for... for using gamification or if anyone... Oh, make a has, game out of... Yeah, yeah. in terms of if you could get sort of new angles or anything on yeah. even data that's already been existed. Because, right. I mean, you look at sort of the huge scale, especially with, like, digital and how it's kind of going exponential in terms of adding things to archives. Yeah. So, yeah, I was kind of thinking about that angle a little bit. Oh, you know... Could I'm you kind of about the question. Sure. Well, getting, the idea, yeah. and, you know, um, uh, forget, what's the name of the, the McGonagall book? Um, there's, um, I mean, the people have written about this, about how, you know, people have attacked social problems by making it possible for people, you know, to um, contribute, you know, just by playing games, right? I mean, people play games all the time. This is another thing. Even more people than are taking pictures of declassified documents, orders of magnitude more people, you know, are playing games, you know, on, on the tube or wherever. Um, and so, you know, could you make a game, you know, of some of these kinds of problems that would get lots of people, you know, contributing to solutions? And I would say, yes, absolutely. Will you help me make that happen? <laughs> because, you know, you need talented um, web developers, you know, who are, you know, interested and willing to, to you know, design a good game, right? Um, and, you know, I could imagine different ways of doing that. Um, if you like reading documents about nuclear weapons... Um, one of the problems we're working on now, and this is directly at the suggestion of, of people in government, one of the biggest problems with declassification right now is that every single piece of paper in the U.S. before it's released to the public has to be reviewed in case it has any information related to nuclear weapons. Right? This is a massive bottleneck. Uh, that's been introduced into the declassification process. So we're working on a classifier that would predict, you know, whether a document is more or less likely to have information related to nuclear weapons. This kind of research, though, you know, it produces results where we have 5,000 documents, you know, and we need people to actually read the documents, 
to begin to identify the parts of the text that actually represent restricted data or formally restricted data. Um, so people like reading about nuclear weapons. Some people do. And they were willing to say, you know, a simple yes, no, or like find the nuke, you know. They would help us go nuclear. <laughs> um, in fact, we, this is another example. We want to build this into the, our, our website where you could be looking at, if you're interested in nuclear weapons, you could be looking at, you know, uh, your search results might return 20,000 documents. They could be rank ordered in terms of which are the ones that are most nuclear or radioactive. Hmm. You could do a similar kind of thing, a classifier to identify and rank documents according to whether they're more or less likely to, to be about covert operations. And so there, there are a lot of different things that you could begin to do when you're dealing with millions of documents. But the only way to do that is to begin to get, yes, humans to read those documents and, and help the algorithms be less stupid. You know, because as many people will tell you, you know, algorithms aren't smart. You know, they, they are, you know, as good as you design them, as good as you, you test them and improve them, um, and it's, it's as good or bad as the data you're using as a training set, as a test set, and so on. So, so it's a lot of work, and it actually requires yeah. people who are willing to help. And it would be even better if it wasn't work, you know, if it was fun. And my idea is probably terrible. There probably Somebody who actually has a talent for games would probably come up with 20 ideas that are better than that one. So maybe you're one of them. Uh, the gentleman there, please. The Priestland. Um, I'd like to ask you to say a bit more about your views so far about the causes and, and patterns of classification slash declassification. That is what, what's driving this over time. I mean, how far is it event-driven, World War I, 9-11, and um, how far is it policy-driven, mm -hmm. i.e. people like Kissinger are much more likely to be cynical and, or say cynical things that they don't want exposed or right. real, uh, realist things. And how far is it um, sort of process-driven, as it seemed you were suggesting it was under Obama, i.e. it's just too difficult now to yeah. declassify and they're too worried about uh, declassifying or, and they don't have the money to do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the arguments I've made is that, uh, and this is not original to me, it goes back to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, even before him, a guy named Edward Schills, a, a really good sociologist, said that there is a culture of secrecy, you know, and one of the reasons why you find, you know, government officials um, um, creating secrets is because they have all the incentives to do it, you know, that uh, secrets are kind of currency, you know, when you can't actually bribe other officials, you know, but you need to trade something to get what you want, then yes, you create new secrets because you have something then to, to trade to get what you need. Um, and there, there's no disincentive, right? Because uh, very rarely does anybody, you know, get, in fact, never, you know, does anybody get disciplined, you know, for overclassifying or for not releasing something? Um, and there's a lot of research in, in cognitive psychology about how anything, you know, that's marked as secret um, will be um, seen as both uh, more valuable mm. and more reliable, right? Mm. Just because you put secret on it. it makes people think it's more valuable and it's more reliable. And so as long as that's the case, you're just going to see, you know, more and more secrets. And presidents will try to control it, you know, because they want to control that power for themselves. You know, but when faced with, a, with an enormous bureaucracy, um, consistently they've, they've been failing. And so what adds to it, though, is that if you look at that curve, I'm surprised nobody has said this already. Um, so there's this curve, right? It's exponential, right? The, this is like the rate at which new secrets are being created. Mm -hmm. Every kind of information is increasing exponentially. And in fact, there are reasons to believe that, um, if anything, you know, there may be you know, fewer, um, you know, kind of fewer examples of secret information that are being uh, generated relative to all the other kinds of information, you know, web videos and... and 
you know, uh, pictures through your phone and, and whatnot. The reason for that is because people, government officials are being more and more cautious, you know, about the things that they commit, you know, in uh, ways that can be preserved, right? So there are far fewer now who are keeping diaries, for instance, right? Um, so th- there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that there's less record keeping of all kinds than used to be. Um, and so... Um, so big data, you know, the way in which it's uh, making it cheaper to produce information, to store information, retrieve information, the way you get different kinds of communications now that are classified, you know, not just you know, email, but also text messages, video conferences, and so on. So, so the amount of classified information is increasing at the same rate as everything else. Um, but what makes it different is that, you know, by law, all of that information, if any of it is going to get released to the public, has to be reviewed not just for official secrets or national security information, it also has to be reviewed for private information. And if you're only you know, devoting less than one-tenth of one percent of your budget you know, to that process, and the other plus 99% is devoted to you know, protecting those secrets, and this is what you get, you know, very little. Um, so, so that's you know, what I would argue is that what's driving it, you know, it's the culture of secrecy, it's the expansion of all kinds of information, and the reason why we're seeing proportionally less and less of it um, is because there are so few resources being devoted you know, to ha- insisting that it be released. And so few people seem to care. I mean, you know, I know I'm you know, shouting in the wilderness here, because it, it was only with the Clinton emails uh, a couple weeks ago that you began to finally see some reporting about what's really a crisis at the National Archives. I mean, it, the National Archives has the lowest morale of any government department or agency, the United mm. States government. Mm. But it's had that same situation for more than five years now. It's only now that people are starting to wake do you, up to do it. Do you suspect this is, uh, you can't talk about universal, but I mean, is, are, are you picking up things from other countries, Western countries, let's call them for the want of a better word, we you hear the same, feel the same going on as yeah. the United States. So we had. You've been down to the National Archives here. Mm-hmm. We had this cool. workshop um, at a, right here um, mm-hmm. in January, where yeah. um, there are historians from Germany, from Italy, France, uh, Finland, Sweden. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good. Like <laughs> um, and they count. Yeah, it's, and what we found is it's different in different countries. It was remarkable to find out that in Germany. Uh, they have still not moved to electronic records. <laughs> I mean, there are people asking, "How do you run a social security system without electronic records?" I mean, they 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 have you know databases, right? But they they haven't moved to you know committing uh, kind of planning memoranda and you know interoffice communications and whatnot. Seemingly, you know, they haven't moved to electronic records. Um, so it's it's going to be different in different countries, and it's kind of surprising in some ways. In the the UK, uh, this is absolutely a problem. You know, if you talk to uh, the people like Tim Gollins and Michael Moss, who are closest to this, you know, people who have been working in, in digital preservation, they would tell you that historians haven't woken up. You know, the era of the finding aid is over. Right? You're going to go to an archive, and maybe there's going to be a search engine. That's it. Good luck. Right? So, so most historians haven't really woken up to this. And if you think, I've been talking about historians, but think of all the social science disciplines who depend on historians of to course. do their work. Right? I mean, so much of the data you know, for sociology, for political science, for economics, and so on, it comes from the work of historians in archives. Right? So this isn't just a problem for the historical profession mm. or the cause of open government. It is a problem for the academy, mm. right? Mm. Mm. I think. Uh, the gentleman here, please, yeah. Joseph Kim from uh, Regents University. I was wondering, do you see any 
ways in which the private tech sector can help with your endeavor, or are there goals as a corporation or corporations too um, hard to align with what you're trying to do? For example, Google had great success uh, archiving the Harvard, Harvard uh, Library. Right. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and it shows how this goes beyond you know, the, uh, the, the public record. Um, I mean, have any of you, you know, thought about your private papers? Do any of you even have paper? <laughs> um, I mean, much of what used to be considered like private paper was paper, right? But now it's email, right? And the email is more or less owned, you know, by corporations. Um, and, you know, if you talk to people, like the, Google has a philosopher in residence. Uh, I talked to this guy and I asked him, you know, you'd think the philosopher anyway would have thought about this. Like, does Google think that there's some kind of public responsibility to preserving kind of the social, cultural history of our time? And he looked at me like, what are you, nuts? <laughs> Nobody had even considered it, you know, that in fact, the real debates within Google are about, um, Yes, what do we do with this data and how can we profit from it? But how do we reduce our exposure, you know, especially after, after Snowden you know, and the, the many other you know, kinds of things that have made people worried about sharing their data? And so the, unless they find ways to make it profitable, they get rid of it as quick as they can. Yeah. I mean, the private corporations get rid of private data as quickly as they possibly can, you know, because it costs them money to preserve this. Unless they can find some way of profiting from it, why would they? Um, now, Interestingly, the NSA has the same attitude. Why would we be the world's archive? That's crazy. You know, so they also, part of their public relations actually is now saying that they're getting rid of everything after X number of years. Um, and that they also say, this is interesting, I went to visit the NSA some time back, and they said, we're in the same business as Google. Bulk collection. <laughs> Bulk collection and then, and then data analysis, you know, to see what we can discover with algorithms um, and see what we can learn from it. You know, in this case, not for profit, but for national security. Um, but, you know, it's much the same attitude. Now, you asked a question like, is the private sector um, willing to support this effort? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And I've, you know, talked to people. And I should acknowledge, you know, the um, MacArthur Foundation has provided a grant to support this work. Um, and I've gotten support from Columbia University as well. And, and the LSE, of course. Thank you, LSE. Um, so I, I'm hoping, anyway, that we can create partnerships with people in the private sector. Because, you know, after all, I mean, the whole business was built on data mining, right? And much of the fundamental research to begin with was paid for by DARPA and IARPA. It was paid for by the U.S. government because they couldn't deal with all the data and they had to find ways of, of analyzing it. And so, you know, these fields of natural language processing, machine learning, in many ways, fundamental ways, they grew out of government intelligence efforts. And so I think it stands to reason that people have now made billions of dollars, you know, based on that kind of research, that they should give something back. Um, and not, you know, necessarily to me. There's, there's a couple of other projects, and there's one right here in the UK called Project Abaca, which is oriented towards much the same purpose. Great. I think we'll call uh, the proceedings to an end. I firstly want to make an announcement, just one. Uh, that is to announce our, this, this is not to say goodbye, but uh, announce our next uh, Philip Ramont uh, lecturer, professor for next year. He'll be the ninth, and his name is Ian Morris uh, from Stanford University, and we welcome him. Uh, to, to the school next year, and it continues this great tradition of the Philip Ramon professorships, which, as I say, began with Paul Kennedy, who will be coming back here, by the way, very soon, I hope, to give a public lecture, and has continued with our eighth 
Philip Ramon, Professor uh, Matt Connolly. Matt, it's been fantastic getting you back here, bring you again to the LSE. We want to see you back again you. very, very soon. I wonder if we could put all our hands together and say thanks to Matt Connolly. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.